So, now, it's interesting, we just read a passage that made a distinction between the word of experience and the word from on high, which is the word of the Spirit. See how exact and how fine the wisdom of the fathers is. According to the Staritz, the prayer of the one who prays fervently may suffer many vicissitudes, struggle against the enemy, battle with self, with the passions, with people, against the imagination. And in these cases, the mind is not pure and nothing is clear. But when pure prayer comes, when the mind united with the heart silently stands before God, when the soul is conscious of grace within herself and is given over to the divine will, unhindered by the action of the passions and the imagination, then prayer heeds the inspiration of grace. Now it may seem rather unlikely in our modern world, with everything buzzing around us, that we could ever possibly reach the stage of pure prayer when the mind united with the heart silently stands before God. But in fact, in a curious way, our times offer us this experience through an intense form of suffering. The suffering that we experience in the modern world, and it's all around us, and I don't need to go into to detail because the curious thing is that although we have in many ways a much more comfortable life, misery abounds, despair is all around us, and perhaps more than ever, people are tempted to take their own lives, such is the level of despair. And when we know thanks to the saints who reveal to us the way of Christ, when we know how to handle these things and how to transform psychological states, emotional states, into spiritual ones, then we begin to enter this world of those who have been well-pleasing to God. As I say, it's because the pain is so acute, the comfort of this world is incapable of bringing a sustained relief to our suffering. And eventually, especially those one hopes, living in the climate of the church, one realizes there's no other way but to turn to God. And we have to learn how to do that. We're going to come back to this question of transforming psychological states into spiritual ones because it's such an important theme. But for now, I just want to mention it in passing and continue reading to the end 
of this section on discovering the will of God. When someone lacking experience sets out on this path, the quest for the divine will, the path is being the quest for the divine will through prayer, who cannot by the taste, quote-unquote, distinguish with any certainty between the action of grace and the manifestation of the passion, of pride in particular, then it is absolutely vital to have recourse to a spiritual father and when confronted with each and any spiritual phenomenon or insinuation to adhere strictly to the ascetic precept, neither accept nor reject until one's spiritual father pronounces his ruling, his ruling, his advice. By not accepting, so what is he referring to now? We're living the spiritual life and trying to live a prayer life and things happen and we experience things in prayer and we're not sure sometimes what they are because of our own lack of experience, something presents itself to us and we're tempted to accept it as from God. Is it from God? Or something presents itself and we're tempted to identify it as being from the adversary. Is it from the adversary? When we lack experience, as we do at the beginning of our spiritual journey, it's normal, we're not in a position to discern when it's the one case and when it's the other. So Father Safrani is pointing out here, in reference to the life of St. Silwan, the importance of neither accepting nor rejecting, but not only not accepting and rejecting, but saying, I'm going to ask my spiritual father. You can stop, let's say, you can stop praying at that moment and say, this surpasses me. I'm not able to judge what is happening. I'm going to ask my spiritual father. And that way you neither accept nor do you reject. And so you take the humble way of saying, I will ask someone else, my spiritual father. By not accepting, the Christian guards himself against the danger of mistaking demonic machinations for divine inspiration, and thus giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, and rendering divine homage to demons. That's very serious. But that's avoided by taking this way. By not rejecting, by not rejecting, one avoids another peril, namely attributing divine action to demons, and so falling into the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. 
like the Pharisees who declared that Christ doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, prince of the devils. And interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly initially, Father Sofroni says that the second peril is more dreadful than the first, since the soul may become accustomed to rejecting grace, to detesting it, and grow so used to resisting God that she will thus define herself on the eternal plane, so that her sin shall not be forgiven neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Whereas the soul that promptly recognizes her wrongdoing through repentance attains salvation, for no sin is unforgivable except the sin that is not repented of. There is much that needs saying concerning this extremely important ascetic rule, neither accept nor reject, and how the ascetic puts it into practice. But since the object of the present book is to set out only basic propositions and not go into detail, I will return to my earlier theme. That's a bit of a disappointment there, but there it is. In its more perfect form, knowledge through prayer of the divine will is a rare phenomenon conceivable only after much effort, prolonged experience of struggle against the passions, frequent and painful tempting from demons on the one hand and divine intervention on the other. But ardent prayer for help is a good thing and essential for all superiors and subordinates the old and the young, teachers and learners, fathers and children. The Staritz insisted that everyone without exception, independently of his position, his circumstance or his age, should always and in all things pray God, each in so far as he knew how, for enlightenment, so that he might gradually conform his path to God's holy will until he attains perfection. That's the end of this first section. seems like, amazingly, each time I read it, I have to say that it's just such a distillation, such an intense distillation of patristic wisdom that talking about it is almost to cheapen it, you know. But before we go on to obedience, which is a slightly shorter section and follows on naturally after what Father Sofroni has said in discovering the will of God, it's probably easier for those who have close proximity to their spiritual father. That's true enough. That is, that's characteristic of the monastic life especially. But the same thing would be advisable and is advisable because by taking that spiritual stance, you're shielding yourself until such time as you have the opportunity 
to speak with your spiritual father. We've read already some passages here which tell you that you accept the first word from your spiritual father as from God and not to relegate that to a human conversation. That, I think, is pretty clear. And if you're cultivating the life of the church, you're living the life of the church, you are cultivating within yourself that discernment that makes you attentive, makes you aware of, as we said, the presence of God in your life, and that God could reveal his will to you any way he wishes, and depending on the circumstances, is not limited in any way to those circumstances. Could be revealed to you through a child. Some way God will reveal to you what you need to know for your own salvation at that moment. It's enough for us to be watchful, prayerfully watchful. One example, a young man once told me that when he was praying once upon a time, in privately in his room, he felt that he was caught up in the grace of God and um, the prayer was very strong, it became strong. And then he felt that a spirit was present. And the spirit said, as he approached that young man, said, the Holy Spirit is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. Make ready to accept the Holy Spirit. And he didn't know what to make of that. Never had that experience before, right? So he was shaken by that experience. And he went to his spiritual father, and his spiritual father said to him, well, the fact that you were experienced that probably is a sign that you were in a good spiritual state. But if the spirit that approaches you makes you feel some kind of fear, not the fear of God that brings peace, but, you know, that troubles your soul, so that you don't know what to do. The Holy Spirit is coming, the Holy Spirit is coming, and your heart tells you there's something wrong. It brings confusion. That's not from God. What is from God? Peace. Peace be unto you. When the Lord appears peace. When the angels appear, they bring peace. So he learned from that experience how, if it happens again and you have the same level of confusion and you don't have peace and you don't know what to do, neither accept nor reject. Say, I'll ask my spiritual father. So you don't judge it. You don't accept it. You don't reject it. When it becomes obvious, though, that it doesn't bring peace, you learn that, well, that's probably not from God. So that's just one example to make that neither accept nor reject more concrete. 
If you live in the church and you live the spiritual life, sooner or later we're going to experience things. Not that we look for experiences, but in the spiritual life, there are many vicissitudes, as Saint Siloan says. There are many ups and downs. And that's the value of being able to turn to a master of the spiritual life is this clarity, this discernment, this abundance of discernment. If you'll forgive me, but with Father Sofroni, the abundance of discernment was amazing, was amazing. The level of discernment. And what do you see nowadays when people have every good intention and they're so inspired and they want to do the best, they want to live a Christian life, very often what you see is that they don't yet have discernment. So they're lacking in balance. Without discernment, they go too far in one direction or the other. And that, as Father Sofroni says, could lead to harm. So yes, discernment. The discernment of the Spirit's in a saying attributed to St. Anthony the Great, in answer to the question, what is the greatest gift? The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit. Discernment of the spirits. Yeah, of the spirits. So we need to have that. But that comes with living the commandments of Christ, learning the humility of Christ. Yes, the life of repentance, of course, is the context, and so on. Easy to say, hard to do. But that's, that's orthodox theology. You know, this is why St. Silwan and Father Sophroni's writings are considered so highly on the holy mountain, because they contain such discernment. And from them you catch a glimpse and a taste of the ethos of the church, the spirit of the church. This is really what we're trying to learn. This is what we're trying to pass on and what would be wonderful for you to pass on to others. And the link between ourselves and the fathers is important because you know, you become part of that tradition. This is your tradition, becomes your tradition, and you you can become a better disciple of Father Sophroni and Saint Siloan than the ones from whom you receive a certain word or pointing towards them and the other fathers as well. But I mention these because obviously there is that connection. But that's the amazing thing, that by the grace of Christ, that we share that discipleship. Ultimately, it's about discipleship and being disciples of the great shepherd himself. So, yes, discovering the will of God, if we put that to the test, the word of St. Siloan and Father Sophroni, you will begin to see... Remarkable things, remarkable things. Regarding the question of what happened to Father Sofroni spiritually 
when in obedience he began to study Greek. My understanding has always been that Father Sofrani did not lose the intensity of his prayer and his prayer life because he followed in obedience the word of his Hikumen. Evidently, Father Sofrani's subsequent career suggests that he was okay afterwards. And not only did he learn Greek, but there was a bishop who was assigned the role of teaching them Greek. Father Sofrani was one of two learning Greek. Basil Krivoshain was the other monk who became Archbishop of Belgium later. He was a fellow monk at uh, St. Pantaleon. And the bishop that taught them Greek got very upset once with Father Sofrani because as he uh, would give them assignments, Father Sofrani would hand in his assignment and the bishop assumed that Father Sofrani had copied and he got very upset with him. On one occasion, he threw the book at him, literally. He says, I want you to do this yourself, not copy. Father Sofrani never said that he, he wasn't copying. And Father Sofrani, I remember, he loved the Greek language, not because it was a beautiful language. It's a beautiful language, but because the divine liturgy was written in Greek. He always used to say, the liturgy of St. Basil the Great you know, he was an artist in his younger years, a successful artist, and he had the eye of an artist and the mentality of an artist. Well, in his later years, he would say that the, the liturgy of St. Basil the Great is the greatest masterpiece ever written of anything. Any art, the greatest masterpiece ever produced is the divine liturgy of Saint Basil the Great. I remember this because I heard him say it so many times. And when people would visit from Greece, if they were theologians, if they were philologists, he would tell them this. And he would say, today we're going to celebrate the liturgy of Saint Basil the Great in Greek. Elinisti, in Greek. And um, he lived the divine liturgy in a very special way, very special way. And it's difficult to describe it, but serving in the altar when Father Sofrani was celebrating the divine liturgy was a revelation. It was an event, one of those moments that always stays with you. Yes, and you see, this is why it's so unfortunate that we don't teach our people the Divine Liturgy. We don't teach them the Divine Liturgy. The Divine Liturgy contains everything. Everything. The Eucharistic prayers, there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater than the Eucharistic prayers of the Divine Liturgy. 
And the greatest liturgy is the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. We don't teach our people. Either we follow the practice of the silent reading of the prayer so that during the liturgy, the only thing that the people hear is what the choir is singing, which is the responses and hymns in between the prayers, but it's not the Divine Eucharist. Or when it's said loud, sometimes it's a refreshing thing that the prayers of the liturgy are read loud enough to hear them if you're listening, despite the flowery singing that's taking place, covering everything. But if we taught our people the divine liturgy, as I said, everything is contained in those words. I mean, it's, it's theology, it's poetry, it's everything. Everything is contained. The whole story of redemption thanksgiving for being brought into existence out of nothing, all the things that God has done for us, and so on and so forth. I used to teach liturgical theology. We would read the anaphora of the main liturgies, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, and also the liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts, because it's, it's important to know that. So, consider including in your readings the anaphora of the divine liturgy. And it's the most important service. It's everything. 